0: Go ahead and have a seat, everybody. Uh, if you are joining us online, we welcome you as well. Um, today we are wrapping up uh, the good work series uh, today and next week we start a brand new series called A City Called Eden. Uh, I am super looking forward to this. This talks about kind of the, the call of God to have an impact on the cities that we live in. Uh, and so next week we kick that one off. But we have work to do today, sisters and brothers. So. Again, uh, we are uh, talking about work, and when we say that, I don't mean it has to be an 8 to 5 in the office kind of gig. It it can be whatever that vocation is that you do for generally in our society, 8 to 5. It could be being a stay-at-home parent. It could be being a student in school. The principles are very much the same. It does apply to everyone. Quick review, first few weeks. Number one, uh, week one we talked about kind of a theology of work going back to the Garden of Eden, how work was something that God Intended for us to do even before the fall. And so it was a part of God's design for our lives and something that we would partner with Him to join with Him in uh, not just providing for ourselves and for our families, but to see His agenda in the world done. And so we do that week one, and, and uh, work is not our enemy. Work is something that's very beautiful and gives us a sense of purpose here in the world. Uh, week after that, we talked about honesty in the workplace, work ethics, if you will. And how important it is that uh, we be honest people in the workplace as a testimony uh, to what God is doing in our lives. It it impacts our witness, how honest we are, and it's a great way to just shine a light. uh, And generally, God will will help us maybe move forward in our careers if we're honest, but if we're dishonest. Uh, then maybe we stutter a bit or fall back or bring the ire of God upon us because God honors the honest. That was the big saying from week two. Week three, last week, whatever we do, we do it unto God. We talked about work ethic and how important it is that we work hard. And so if you have honest, hardworking people who are doing their jobs on mission and on purpose, the odds are you're going to have a pretty good worker there. And that person is going to stand out among their peers. Um, Today we're going to be talking about finding a godly rhythm. Uh, to life, kind of addressing the issue of workaholism, but doing it kind of in a, a, a maybe a bit of a different way, which is to rather than me just saying don't work so hard, we're going to deal with the source, the, the root issue of the problem, which is uh, what goes on up here in our minds. Okay, Second Corinthians chapter 10, Paul says, "Take every thought captive and make it obedient to Christ." Every thought. Every thought is a lot of thoughts. Um, if you think about the things that occupy your thinking, those are the things that are driving you. If you spend the bulk of your time worrying about money, that's what's driving you. If you spend the bulk of your time worrying about your kids, that's what's driving you. Uh, If you spend the bulk of your time obsessing about what's going on online, that's what's driving you. And so when Paul gives you that, take every thought captive and make it obedient to Christ, the aim there is really to take us and make us obedient to Christ. It's a way in which we set our minds free and then move forward in our walk with Christ. And so today we're going to be talking about all the stuff that goes on up here in our headspace. I want to begin by taking uh, one psalm and one proverb and offering them to you as admonitions to kind of just get us kicked off this morning. Psalm 127 verse 2 says, It is useless for you to work so hard from early morning until late at night. Anxiously working for food to eat, for God gives rest to his loved ones. Proverbs 23, 4. Don't wear yourself out trying to get rich. Be wise enough to know when to quit. So you have these two scriptures, and it calls to mind the scene from Alice in Wonderland. What we pursue driving us and where we think we're going or not going Uh, being the key to kind of our our productivity. In Alice in Wonderland, the Cheshire Cat and Alice have a discussion, and Alice says to the Cheshire Cat, would you tell me, please, which way I ought to go from here? Well, that depends a good deal on where you want to get to. Well, I don't much care where. Well, then it doesn't matter which way you go, Cheshire Cat says. Truer words have never been spoken when it comes to this kind of concept of... purpose or purposelessness. If you don't know where you're going, then it really doesn't matter which direction you go. It doesn't. You know, If you don't know where exactly you're trying to do, walk wherever you want to. It doesn't matter. But for Christians, we have a target, a clear target, which is we want to take every thought captive and submit them to obedience to Christ. We want to follow Jesus each day. We want to put the kingdom first. We have these targets out there. So then what we do serves that purpose. If that's where we want to go, then you set up goals that help you get there. What we often will do is set our goals out as the purpose, but they're not. Our goals are not our purpose. Our purpose is our goal, if that makes sense. So that's, that's the mental shift that takes place on a daily basis that separates the Christian from just whoever. Uh, that when I wake up in the morning, what I'm trying to do is fill my mind with the things of God, the kingdom being first, The types of things that God would want up here, as opposed to the anxiety-driven kind of responses, that are normal. The psalmists, uh, depending on who the psalmist is, sometimes it's David, sometimes it's others in the psalms, talk about lack of sleep, for instance, and the stuff that keeps them awake at night. And of course, if you're David and the king is after you and he's trying to kill you, that could keep you awake at night. I understand that, I guess. But at the same time, the Bible tells us, don't be a slave to fear, don't be afraid, God is with you. Don't be anxious about anything, these kinds of things that to people that are, uh, you know, have PhDs in worry like we do, it is a, uh, it sounds out of touch almost because it's become the air we breathe. So what we're going to try to do today is take what scripture has to say about what goes on up here. And obviously things like not being anxious matter, okay? But yes, okay, well, how do you do that? Well, you could say just don't be anxious, but the question really is deeper than that. The question is, what's driving that? If a person obsesses about their job all the time, is it because they have to? There's no other way around it? Um, My experience just dealing with people over a long period of time is a lot of workaholics are driven by either anxiety about the job that they have, or they're driven by one of their parents in their ear telling them that they're supposed to work harder. And that if they don't, then they're flake or they're lazy or they're doing something like that. That one of those two is the, is the case. When Scripture talks about work and work ethic and honesty and all these things, it stacks them up. But, the, but, but also points out that God wants people to rest. He wants rhythm. Six days he creates, then one day there's Sabbath. Getting a lot of the wrong things done, sisters and brothers, is not very productive. When in a king of the hill on the wrong hill doesn't help you. Getting a little of the right things done also isn't very productive. I'm even going to go as far as to say getting as much good done as possible. That's not even the entire goal of our lives. That what God actually wants is not balance. He wants rhythm. He doesn't want us to just kind of divide everything 50-50 and keep it like a teeter-totter where both kids are in the air at the same time. But what he's looking for is rhythm, that there is a time for everything. Our text this morning, Ecclesiastes 3, 1 to 9, will be familiar to some of you, but I want to pay attention specifically to verse 9, the very last one, which usually gets cut off when this text gets preached. Ecclesiastes 3 1 to 9. Solomon writes: For everything there is a season, a time for every activity under heaven, a time to be born, and a time to die, a time to plant. And a time to harvest. A time to kill and a time to heal. A time to tear down and a time to build up. A time to cry and a time to laugh. A time to grieve and a time to dance. A time to scatter stones and a time to gather stones. Time to embrace and a time to turn away. A time to search and a time to quit searching. A time to keep and a time to throw away. A time to tear and a time to mend. A time to be quiet and a time to speak, a time to love and a time to hate, a time for war and a time for peace. And then verse 9 says, what do people really get for all their hard work? So he gives this kind of stunning, uh, almost poem on rhythm. You know, not everything is supposed to happen at the same time. They come in different seasons. I mean, we wouldn't look at somebody who went on vacation and worked half the time and applaud them for working half the time so they kept work and life in balance. When you're on vacation, you're supposed to go on vacation. When you go to work, you go to work. When you go to school, you go to school. When you're sleeping, you're supposed to sleep, not sleep and work at the same time, which is what a lot of us try to do. So those kinds of things, it's not about balance. It's about rhythm. There is no such thing as work-life balance. There's only in rhythm and out of rhythm. So rhythm, when we use that term, means giving the right things the right weight at the right time. So for instance, uh, God creates the Earth, He goes six days, takes the seventh, says, that's for rest." Not because he's tired, but he's setting an example for us. He has the sun go up and he has the sun go down. There was a rhythm. You'll notice this little refrain during creation, everything according to its kind. God's like sorting them into boxes, and he's creating rhythms for the the earth. Sun's up, sun's down. Moon will give you a little bit of light at night, but most part, go to bed, is basically what he's saying. And then we create the light bulb so that we can jack up everybody's rhythms all the time, right? He had a rhythm, an original rhythm to life. Six days on, one of Sabbath. You'll notice this in your everyday life. Like when we were uh, young parents, our kids needed one thing from us. They needed constant attention. Because if not, they would hurt themselves or somebody else. Uh, they couldn't go to the bathroom by themselves. They often threw fits or acted out or did whatever. They needed more care when they were smaller. Now our kids are older. I, I'm not sure if they even live in the house anymore. Like they're kind of just gone all the time, but they need something else. They need more gentle guidance. They need more mentoring kinds of stuff than they did when they were smaller and they needed us to even getting from here to there. They they could barely do by themselves. So you recognize that if you're raising kids, your marriage is the same when when you're first married. That is a different season. And then you realize your spouse is going, my wife and I just celebrated 22 years this week. Some of you have us by 40 years. That's awesome. But there's a different stage to marriage, right? There's the the, hey, we just got married and we have no kids yet and we're still, you know, uh, Googling over each other or whatever and, and romantic and, and uh, you know, a good date night is a trip to Home Depot to dream about what tile you want in your kitchen. There's that. And then there's the different phases that you go through to where then eventually you go, you get older, your kids go on, now you got grandkids, you're retiring. Now everything's different. It changes, right? There's a season for things. So if we think that way and about rhythm and how God might want us to structure our weeks and our lives in order to take every thought captive and to have the right rhythm so that we're getting the right emphasis on the right things at the right time, then what we'll do is, is want to pan out and go, okay, first of all, what kind of head congestion do I have going on right now? And if I could wipe the, the, you know, uh, the congestion free from there and kind of reset, hit a reset button, how would I build a life, a lifestyle that would allow me to have godly things in my head that drove my life, drove my behavior in the workplace? Whether I'm a student, stay-at-home parent, worker, whatever the case may be. So with that in mind, uh, I'm going to give you four pillars of a God honoring a week, okay? And we'll hit these... uh, kind of in order, and I think they kind of need to come in this order, all right, for a variety of reasons. So we're going to take buckets of scripture and, uh, that we've collected and kind of present them to you and principles that will help you kind of uh, maybe be able to do this. All right, here we go. Purpose, that's number one. I, what I mean here by purpose is understanding that God values time, and so should we. I have one life. Time is a non-renewable resource. I have some hourglass in the cosmos that God knows when my days are up. That hourglass was tipped over the day I was born. And at some point, like the writer of Ecclesiastes said, there is a time to die. My time's coming. Meantime, I'm put on this earth for a particular purpose. And so what I do with my time matters. And it, it's part of stewardship in general for me to, to take uh, the time that I've been given and to, and to use it in a wise fashion. Often when somebody... Even the the people that we love saying, well, I want to spend as much time as I can with loved ones. We always say that, but that always takes place in time. And it is a a fact that when many of our loved ones go on to be with Jesus, we'll say, boy, I wish we just had more time. Um, You know, the the people who count these kinds of things, they tell me that uh, by the time, if you have an 18-year-old kid who goes away to college, when they leave the house, you have spent 90% of all the time that you will spend with that child to that moment. You only got 10% left, which is kind of depressing. Um, for some of you, it's very exciting that you're, you're 90% done, but, but for many of us, that kind of, but it makes you go, okay, well, then I hope I use that 90% well. And if I'm going to do that, if they're going to spend the bulk of their time after they leave the house doing other things, and I want to make sure that they're equipped to do it, but we don't think that way about ourselves. We don't think to ourselves, okay, well, I've got X amount of time left on this earth, so how can I use that in a God-honoring way? So it's about, when I say purpose, what I mean is being able to have things uh, calibrated to the true north, seeking first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, going after Jesus on a daily basis by picking up our cross and following him, taking every thought captive and making it obedient to Christ, okay, that's purpose. That's the point of my life, is to honor God while I'm here on this earth, okay? So it's purpose. If you don't have that, then like, uh, you know, the rabbit and Alice in Wonderland, okay, it really doesn't matter which way you go. Number two, priorities. This is then where the rest of the stuff, you start putting them in the right order. Uh, Yogi Berra kind of beat Alice in Wonderland too, I guess Alice in Wonderland might have been before him, but I don't know when he said it. If you don't know where you're going, you'll end up someplace else. Knowing what you're trying to do on the earth and what God says is most important in life is what matters. So this is about plunking then the big rocks into life before everything else. Understanding everything is not flat. Whether or not you pay your electric bill today that just showed up in the mail or whether or not you spend time uh, with a with your best friend who just lost their husband or not necessarily on the same playing field in a given day. Not everything is this, worth the same amount of points. You remember the story Jesus and uh, Mary and Martha. Jesus goes to Mary and Martha's houses in Luke 10, and you got Mary and Martha. Martha's kind of the one, the domestic goddess who wants to make sure everything's just right, everything's just perfect, and so she goes around the kitchen and she's. Uh, you know, around the house making sure everything's ready for Jesus' arrival. Jesus shows up, though, and she doesn't change. She keeps bustling around the house, and she starts to resent Mary, who stopped and is now sitting at the feet of Jesus listening. She uh, gets resentful of Mary, and so she tells Jesus, hey, Jesus, would you make her stop and come help me around the house? And it says, the Lord answered her, Martha, Martha, you are anxious and troubled about many things. But one thing is necessary. Mary has chosen the good portion, which will not be taken away from her. Okay? So you choose what's best. What's that? It's Christ. He has to come first. Because without him, your life can't have rhythm. Not the way it could with him. I thought about trying something today, but it just became kind of a cumbersome to figure out how to do it, the drums in a band kind of form the foundation for all the songs. If the drummer is off, the song can't sound right. It just can't. It confuses everything else, right? I thought what I might do is go get on the drum set and invite the band to come out and try the same song that they just did right before this with me on the drums and see how it sounds for you all. It would have been a cacophonous disaster, right? Right? I was thinking, uh, you know, maybe another analogy we could use is, so if you put somebody that's not supposed to be on the drums that can't provide rhythm to lead the song. Anxiety, get on the drums. Fear, get on the drums. Or uh, your fleshly desires. I want to be rich. I want to be famous. I want to be an influencer. You get those things on the drums and your life gets out of rhythm real fast. It's like animal from the Muppets or whatever, just just slamming and making noise, but there's no rhythm. It's just noise. Whereas the picture you get is that Jesus becomes this conductor. And he's the one that provides the rhythm and tells the cellists when to come in and tells the violinists to come in. Okay, now... Put this first. And as you're, you're playing that out, then it's like, okay, next we go here. And just with the baton like this, he's conducting. He's helping you see what you're supposed to do. Not just putting a one foot in front of the next, but when he asks you to follow him, calling you forward. To follow him and guiding you. So that you're not just out there flailing around. And hoping for the best. That's why many of us spend a lot more time worrying about our kids than we do with our kids because worrying is a full-time job and it's a hard one at that. So when when scripture talks to us about choosing what is best first, it's a way of saying, okay, your heart, your life, your orientation has to be has to be if you want your life to be in rhythm and to have the wisdom, the discernment, the energy, to give the right things the right amount of attention at just the right times, that takes a wisdom that we don't have on our own. It takes a discernment and a drive that is different than just whatever our anxieties throw us into. I worry, therefore I am. There's no way to live. So Jesus becomes as the top priority. I mean, we talked last week, two houses, one built on rock, one built on sand. Storm comes, one falls flat, one stays standing. Jesus says that the one whose house stands is the one who hears his words and does what it says. So if we take what he says about everything from work ethic to honesty to whatever, and then all, I mean the truckload of passages about loving God with heart, mind, soul, and strength, following Jesus uh, every day, picking up your cross and following him, seeking the kingdom first, which, by the way, is preceded immediately by don't worry about what you're going to eat or what you're going to drink or what you're going to wear. God will provide those things. But if, if Jesus is no longer the conductor, then don't expect a beautiful symphony. Expect strange music to come out. Music that lacks rhythm, which is number three. Again, there is no such thing as work-life ballads. A better Substitute is life in rhythm, giving the right things, the right attention at the right time. So um, if you're married, you can do this by yourself, but but if you're married, let me encourage you to look at your week before it happens with your spouse. Give it a grade one to ten on a projected stressometer scale. I think there's gonna be a one, two, eight, ten, forty-six. Because you can just see I'm staring death in the face this week. Okay. Talk about it together. And once you do, so you give your one to ten, they give their one to ten. Okay, you compare. Okay, if that's over, if that those numbers added together are over fifteen, let me suggest to you that you have a very stressful week coming. Now you're going, well, that just averages a seven and a half. No, that's because the stressful things that you don't know are happening yet haven't happened yet. So those are the things you know are going to happen. Now, you can't always keep that number at 15 or less. But that 15 is likely to become a 20 or an 18 or 19 over the course of the week. You know why? Because you're going to blow a tire on Monday. Car's not going to work right. The air conditioning's going to go blow out during a heat wave. Um, you know, your kid's going to come home with, a, with an F on their news on their paper. Um, you know, the, your, your favorite team's going to lose the big ball game. I mean, whatever the case may be, but the stress level is going to go up from wherever you set it. Now, spouses, if you're going to do it together, understand that if, if your spouse says, well, my week is a four and you happen to say your week is a nine, that doesn't make you better. That doesn't mean you work harder. That just means on that week, you're, you're sitting here and they're sitting here. So what it does is, as a spouse, it lets me know, okay, she's got a nine, I've got a five, then I'm in a position to be able to be helpful. The point isn't, well, let me see where I can find some stress to get me to a 9 so that my wife's not outworking me. That's not how you look at it. What you do, though, is you go, okay, we're at a 14. And I recognize that, you know, two, three weeks from now, we might be facing a 35 or something. And maybe even months at a time. When you're in ministry, you can go months where it's just boom, 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 boom. So right now, if, if I say, hey, I'm a 4, and she says, hey, I'm a 6, we're at a 10? We praise God for that, and we leverage that. Okay, great. We got a fairly calm week. We should go out. Let's have some fun. Let's relax. Let's get our sleep. Let's do things. Rather than going, oh, man, look at that. So I've got all this free time. No, you don't. Because here's what happens. If you're going to go face Goliath over here, you better show up with a slingshot and some rocks. So if you come into this kind of, of massive stress season over here that you don't know is coming yet and you're on complete and utter fumes, you got nothing to add. It's like a car with, that hadn't had the oil changed in, in a year. You're already on fumes and so you go in here really primed well for defeat because your, your rhythm is off, your, your life hasn't been in rhythm in some time you ever see somebody try to roller skate for the first time? What it's like to watch a guy say my age and uh, we'll say uh, size get on roller skates for the first time? Like nobody has, or, or a guy my age try to get on a hoverboard for the first time. It's like we have no business on those things because we don't have the balance for those things anymore. Now you need your refrigerator moved or something, we can come in handy, but we don't belong on roller skates or... or Or rolling objects. Okay, those days are gone. When you're young, you've got this little center of gravity and you can kind of bounce around and do whatever you want, right? It's like that. Your life is going to get heavier. As you get older, I know if you're 13, 14, 15, it feels heavy. Okay? But not the kind of heavy that you get as a grown-up. Where you have kids now that... Have challenges and needs and spin out on you, and you got responsibility for families, and you're not managing a hundred dollar a week uh, salary from, you know, I don't know, JCPenney or whatever. You're managing a household with a house, bills that have to be paid, and cars and, and uh, food for everybody, and, you know, all this uh, college tuition, whatever the case may be. The responsibilities go up, and so the sooner you learn how to discipline your life and find the rhythms. That come from trying to put the right things at the right time, right emphasis. Break it down by day. Monday's gonna be a five, Tuesday's an eight, Wednesday's a 10, Thursday's a six, whatever, right? You can look at it that way. Even if you're doing it by yourself, look at that like seven, eight mark. And if you have a couple of weeks like that that are over that, then you need to find a way to get a week after that, if you can, that's underneath that to refill. Rhythm so that you can protect this, what's going on up here, in your head. Usually workaholism, as I mentioned, is is a result of head congestion, stuff that occupies our minds. It's not just demanding bosses or demanding teachers. They can be part of the problem, but more often it's our obsessions that cause us to worry and either bring work home with us or to want to spend more time at the office than we probably should. And the best way to combat that is to fix our minds on Christ and then let create systems that carry all the tasks away. David Allen wrote a book called Getting Things Done that was a life changer for me. I read it many years ago. I've read it three or four times since. This one statement uh, really made an impact on me, and I think about it often. He says, your head is for having ideas, not holding them. And I realized back then, and it's still a problem, that instead of having a place where I capture these things and throw them into a system that I know I'll be able to give them the right emphasis at the right time, what I was doing is keeping it all here and thinking that if I just worry about it enough, that that's going to change something. That makes me responsible. That if I try to keep it all in my head, first of all, I don't. my head is not that good anymore. Like, I can't remember things anymore. I'm one of those guys that opens the refrigerator and has no idea how I got there and why I was there. You go into your garage and you're like, why did I come out here? That's the age I'm at. I can't, I can't remember the stuff that I used to remember. When I was younger, I could do it. And part of the reason I could do it when I was younger is because I didn't have as much to remember. I thought I had a lot, but I didn't. So what happens is I start thinking about all these things and trying to keep it in my head. Guess who's not present? Every thought's not captive to Jesus. I'm captive to every thought. You see the difference? And so instead of me being able to live my life in rhythm the way that God would want me to and setting some boundaries on myself that force discipline. Force, they're like, oh, Nose spray for the when you have a cold for your thought world. It's like, oh, the congestion is gone. I'm not worried about 50,000 things anymore. I know that those are in a, in a place where I will give them the right amount of attention at the right times. So, for instance, I generally don't open my laptop at the house outside of work hours, ever. Uh, not 100%, but I bet a pretty high average on that. And the reason I don't is because once it's open, everything in my systems and processes is now open and now my head is full and I'm not thinking about Christ anymore, I'm thinking about everything I have to do. So if somebody texts me and says, at night and says, hey, I just sent you an email, take a look at it when you get the chance. I say, great, I'll take a look at it tomorrow. No, but it's really important, it's not that important. It's important to you because you don't have any boundaries and you're working at night. So I'll get to it in the morning Now, if it's really an emergency, people know how to ring my bell and let me know that it's an emergency. But in general, you know, um, I can't just run around trying to put out everybody's fires at the same time. i got plenty of my own. Schedule some, what I call, whatever time. That's where everything goes that you didn't get done because you were interrupted during times you would already planned to be doing something else. I have a life of interruptions. So I plan to be interrupted. And the way I do that is I create a trough at the end where it's like an assembly line. This task was supposed to be done Monday. couldn't get it done Monday. couldn't get it done Tuesday, Wednesday. And I get to Thursday afternoon when I usually have that. And there it is. Boom. So I go in the weekend. Thought's clear. You have your own version of these things. But the aim of it is to keep my head clear. Because I want Christ up there and the tasks over here so that I bring Christ to the tasks, right? As opposed to the tasks up here, and then I bring that into church. Like some of you came in here worried about work, ironically, and you were, or you had managed to put it out of your head until I said the W word in your presence, and now all that stuff came back in, right? Uh, and if you're a student, it works the same. What you want to do is, is have a mind where your thoughts are held captive to Christ, and even your schoolwork is done on mission and on purpose. The goal is to honor God by keeping life in rhythm, and if Jesus isn't at the center, it's very, very hard to honor God. Lastly, rest. God rested on the seventh day, creates Sabbath, uh, that we should observe it and keep it holy, okay? So... um, this is a necessary part of honoring God. And I think a lot of people think that uh, Sabbath means you're not supposed to do um, any work of any kind on the Sabbath. And, and they get that from the way that the Jews observed it back in the day. But Jesus reminds us later on in the Gospel of Mark when his d- uh, disciples are going through picking grain to feed themselves on the Sabbath. And people are like, hey, look at them. They're picking grain. They shouldn't be doing that. You know, he says something extremely valuable. The Sabbath was made for man not man for the Sabbath. It's a gift of God for us to rest, to be able to say, you know what? I am recognizing today that God loves me for more than what I produce. That if I flunked every class the rest of my life, God would still love me. That God is working in my life, regardless of uh, how much I sell, or whatever the bottom line is for the company, or how many games we win, or whatever the case may be, that there is a reality that transcends what I obsess about every day. It's it's like an interruption. It's like a, a holy commercial in the middle of this sick plot that many of us go through, just to say, ah. And it reminds us that God is Lord over our work, so when that we allow him to hit the start and stop button when he sees fit. And we recognize the eternal piece of work. Listen to Hebrews chapter 4, verses 9 to 11. So there is a special rest still waiting for the people of God. For all who have entered into God's rest have rested from their labors just as God did after creating the world. So God's the template again. So let us do our best to enter that rest. But if we disobey God, as the people of Israel did, we will fall. So he says, therefore, this Sabbath rest remains possible for God's people to enter even now in this life. That's verse 9. And then he points to the future, and he says, yes, so there's a rest now, but then there's this big R rest waiting for us later. Being able to cease from these spiritual strivings that reflect uncertainty about our destiny, to just kind of enjoy being established in the presence of God, to share in this everlasting joy that that God enters when he rests on the seventh day. And so we do this now understanding that, as John says in 1 John 5, 3, he says, this is the love of God that we keep his commandments, and his commandments are not burdensome. They're what give us direction and calibration. And so when those are here and they dominate our thinking, and what it is that we worry about every day. The worry is really not a worry at all. It's just a, I'm obsessing about Christ and about faithfulness to Christ. And so when I'm doing that, then I've got this, this way of doing my work that I bring this full of the Holy Spirit, full of the fruit of the Spirit to the job that I do. So now, guess what? You serve your customers better because you've got the fruit of the Spirit being born in your life and your heart, and it's dominant. It's not subservient to the task. It's not, okay, I'm in crisis here and I need some patience. Lord, give me some patience. Patience is the air you breathe. And so when you go in and you need patience, it's there. It's already there. It was there before the problem happened. And you understand that when you face the obnoxious customer or whatever, the obnoxious parent, the obnoxious whatever, that 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 was coming your way and that God has prepared you for this. I'm ready for this because God made me ready for this. And I'm only ready because God made me ready. He prepared me for this. Um, I had a mentor pastor who, uh, he said, the stool is like an old cell phone. He says, it, the battery runs out fast, but it charges very slowly. And he says, that he, he used the term trickle charging. Your soul trickle charges. So it tends to charge like a third of the speed that you can deplete it if you plug it into the right device requiring a lot of power. But Sabbath and some ability to rest replenishes our souls by allowing time for worship and play and joy and sleep. It reorients our life in worship and a sense of God's presence. God loves us for more than we produce, more than what we produce. and that God loves us enough to let us rest. The Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. and it prepares us for work and life by keeping us balanced and rested and focused and in rhythm. Um, one of the culprits of our Busy bodiness and anxiety and worry fits is hurry. Uh, Dallas Willard was the one who said, We must ruthlessly eliminate hurry from our lives. There are very few things that we do better when we're hurrying to do it. We don't even eat better when we hurry, we we can't hurry sleep. Uh, There's almost nothing that improves when we hurry. But when we slow down and we're actually intentional about what we're doing, uh, things go well. I have students that uh, have learning challenges in in class. They don't say, well, great, give them half of the time to take the test that everybody else does. They say, no, give them half more than everybody else does. And you go slower, you make mistakes. Daniel Kahneman, uh, Nobel Prize winning economist, had this little game. He gives it to all of his classes. I'll give it to you. Let's do a little mental exercise here. A bat and a ball cost $1.10. A bat costs a dollar more than the ball. How much does the ball cost? Okay. There you go. There's your answer. The correct answer is $0.05. Most of you said 10 You're wrong. Okay. He says more than half the students at his classes at MIT and Harvard and Princeton missed that game. And he says, the reason is they hurry. Now, you take it to other schools, and it's north of 80% that they miss that. I'm going to guess in this room, even though we were talking about hurry in advance and everything like that, that was probably about the right amount. Okay, I know it's bugging some of you. Okay, do the math. You'll see. The ball costs 10 cents. Then the total cost would be a dollar cents for the ball, buck ten for the bat. Not a dollar ten. So the correct answer is five cents. You can get it later if you want. We can argue about it. But it's five cents. So let me try this for you. Um, are you a better parent when you're hurrying to interact with your kids? Hey, hon, how was your day? Oh, glad to hear it. Glad to hear it. Hey, what's next? Hey, you going to do this? Hey, hey, calm down for just a second. Dad's got to go do this, and I'll be back in just a second. Hold that thought. I'm paying attention. I do care. I'll be right back. Great parenting, right? I'm going over in the sermon, so I'm going to hurry up and just cut the sermon right here, and I'm not going to do anything else, right? I mean, whatever I'm hurrying at, I do worse. Are you a better driver when you hurry? What, What can you do better when you hurry? See, matters of the spirit are not supposed to be matters for hurry. And the more we kind of realize, okay, uh, I'm going, my life is, is out of control. The more we realize that, then the better sense we're going to have that, okay, I've got to reorganize some things. I've got I've to ruthlessly eliminate the hurry from my life so that I can be everything that God wants me to be. Solving that puzzle, the little bat ball thing that we just did, is not about intelligence. It's about the willingness to slow down and pay attention. So if I were to ask you, how is your walk with the Lord? That was about 10 seconds. Felt like about 10 minutes, didn't it? We hurry. We hurry. So it's easy for me to go, oh, you know what? I haven't had the best week in the world, but you know what? Me and God have been tight since day one. I'll bounce back. I'll plan different. I'll be fine. Boom, boom, boom. Don't hurry. Don't hurry. Think about it. How's your marriage? Really, in the ways that God cares about. Don't just go, oh, we're doing great. You know, no, just don't hurry. All right? What is dominating my thought world? What do I spend most of my time thinking about? Don't hurry. So, when it comes down to how we handle our work and our tasks and all the stuff of life, let's seek rhythm which comes from understanding our time matters, right? We've been given this life. We want to we aim it at the things of God. We want to keep the kingdom first. We want Jesus to take every thought captive and make it submit to him. Make it obedient to him. Okay? Then if that's what I want to do, then what I want to do is spend some time this morning, and I'm asking you to do this right now. We're about to take communion. Um, in fact, let's go ahead and ask the, the ushers to come on down. Uh, if you miss the elements, go ahead and put your hand in the air. We'll bring them to you. But hang on with me just a second as that happens. Okay. I want you to think about here. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and all your strength. What is it you're worried sick about? Let's give that to God. What is it that you're pursuing the most in this life if it's not Christ? It's not actually Christ. What is it? I'm trying to get to retirement. Okay. Let's take that. What if that pursuit was submitted to Christ? Um, If it's your kids. How do we submit that to Christ? Again, if you need the elements, go ahead and do this. But what we're going to do is take these things, our thoughts, and ask God to take them captive and make them obedient to Christ today. We take communion every week here at New Vintage Church, and with bread and cup, we remember the body and blood of Jesus who gave himself for us. And that thought, letting that be the forefront right now. Obedience to Christ. So as we do, remember these four pillars that we talked about. How do we want to reorganize or shift things in our lives where our life remains in rhythm? The right emphasis on the right things at the right time. As we we do, let us pray. Father, right now, fill our minds with the things of Christ. Take the worries, take the anxieties, take the idols. Take them away. And uh, fill our minds, Father, with the things of Jesus. Putting the kingdom first. Following Jesus every day. So that, Father, we will please you in our workplaces by being honest and hardworking people. People who, who set their purpose as their goal in the workplace. Father, for those of us who are worried and anxious and fearful, Father, we ask that you, you take that away and that you replace that with the thoughts of victory in Jesus. So Father, now as we contemplate, we say thank you for Jesus who takes away all our fears and replaces them with strength and all the fruit of the spirit, Lord. Make it so this morning as we take communion. In Christ's name we pray, amen.